Hey everyone, I quickly wanted to preface this episode by apologizing. I accidentally mispronounced the town. Um, it is actually pronounced Sycamore and not Sacramore. And one of the suspects' last name is pronounced, I believe, Tessier and not Tesser. I didn't realize this till after I had recorded and edited. So I just want to throw this in there really quick and let's get on with the episode. Hey everyone, welcome back to Crime Sesh. I'm your host, Leah. Don't forget about our case request form in our Instagram bio at Crime Sesh Pod, and please make sure you follow us on there as well. Let's go ahead and get into today's case on the oldest cold case in America that actually went to trial. Maria Ridoff was born on March 12, 1950 to her two parents, Michael and Frances Ridoff, in Sacramore, Illinois. Maria was the youngest of four kids. She had two sisters and one brother. At the time, many people in the area worked on farms, but Maria's father actually worked in a factory and her mother was a homemaker. Maria was a second grader at West Elementary School, and she was described to be pretty, graceful, and intelligent. She had big, brown, shiny eyes, and her mother described her as high-strung. In a 1957 interview, her mother, Frances, said, My daughter was a nervous girl, and if she got in any trouble, she would become hysterical. Someone would probably have to kill her to keep her quiet. I'm the only one who could calm her down. Frances also described Maria as a screamer and said she feared the dark. Maria's best friend was Kathy Sigmund. She lived right up the road on a side street called Archie Place. And in the 50s, it was a completely different time than it is now, obviously. Kids constantly played outside without really any fear of anything. And most people in these farm towns even kept their doors unlocked because everyone literally knew each other. On December 3, 1957, the town of Sacramore would be changed forever. It started out just like any other normal Tuesday morning, and Maria and Kathy had a short walk across the street to West Elementary School. It was cold outside, with showing signs that it might even possibly snow. After school, the girls went back to Maria's house to cut out paper snowflakes because they were just so excited for the cold weather and for it to snow. Around 4 p.m., Maria and Kathy were walking down State Street near the town library when a man in an overcoat caught a glimpse of the girls and started to try and make conversation with them. Understandably, this made the girls very uncomfortable and very uneasy, so they decided to dip into a restaurant and hide from the man, and once they had realized he had left, they continued outside, but something was very different this time. There were half a dozen photographs of nude women on the sidewalk. This wasn't the only odd thing going on in Sacramore at the time. Since Halloween, someone had been writing extreme and offensive words on trees and stop signs at the intersection of Center Cross Street and Archie Place, which was one of Maria and Kathy's favorite spots to play, and that day they had planned to play there after dinner. At 5 p.m. sharp, Kathy went home and Maria joined her family around the table. They were having rabbit, carrots, and potatoes and milk for dinner, which was said to be their favorite. Maria finished off her two rabbit legs and pleaded with her mom and dad to let her go back outside to play with Kathy as the first few snowflakes made their way to the ground. The two girls excitedly met each other at the intersection, and they started their play date by racing to the massive elm tree that sat on the corner. They then began playing one of their favorite games called Duck the Cars, which is played by running back and forth trying to avoid the headlights of oncoming cars. As the girls were having fun and playing, a young man with blonde hair, a narrow face, big and bad teeth, with a high voice approached the girls. He began the conversation by saying, Hello, little girls. Are you having fun? 
He introduced himself as Johnny and told the two girls he was 24 years old and he was not married. Johnny asked the girls if they liked piggyback rides and if they also liked dollies. Johnny truly won little Maria's heart over with one singular piggyback ride. He trotted down along Center Cross Street with Maria on his back, and Maria was just having the time of her life. She was just so happy, and she was giggling. And after her piggyback ride, she ran home to grab a dolly for her next piggyback ride, leaving Kathy with Johnny. As Kathy and Johnny waited on the sidewalk for Maria's return, Johnny asked Kathy if she wanted to go around the block or take a trip in a car or a bus. But Kathy turned down his suggestion, which Johnny followed up with by telling Kathy she was pretty. But Kathy could sense that Johnny definitely liked Maria more. Maria burst through her front door to find her father, Michael, watching television and her mother, Frances, reading the newspaper. Maria made her way to her toy pile and picked out a doll, but her mother suggested she should take a rubber doll with her since it was snowing and it would likely get wet. As Maria made her way back to Johnny and Kathy, Kathy ran home to get some mittens since it was getting colder out, and she asked Maria to come along with her. But Maria declined and decided to stay with Johnny until Kathy returned. Kathy was only gone just for a few minutes, and by the time she returned, Maria and Johnny were gone and nowhere to be found. Kathy made her way to the Ridoff's home to inform Michael and Francis that Maria was gone. And Maria's parents just assumed that, you know, she's seven years old and she was probably just hiding somewhere. So they sent Chuck, Maria's 11-year-old brother, to look for her. And even after Chuck's searching, he could not find his little sister, Maria. The Ridoffs called the police, and within the next hour, the police, along with armed civilians, showed up to begin a search for seven-year-old Maria. Despite the search party's best efforts, they still were unable to locate Maria or Johnny, and the FBI thought that possibly she had been abducted and moved across state lines. So, within two days, the FBI arrived in Sacramento to help local and state police in the search for Maria Ridoff. The FBI and police interviewed numerous witnesses who may have seen the two girls playing that dreadful day. They also spoke to family members who had either seen or spoken with Maria or Kathy during the time Maria went to get her doll and when Kathy went home to get her mittens. Based on the interviews conducted, law enforcement believed that Johnny must have approached the two girls after 6.30 p.m. and the FBI concluded that Maria must have been taken between 6.45 and 7 p.m. that night. Kathy Sigum was the only person who had seen Johnny, so police put her in protective custody in fear that Johnny might come back for her or at least come back to harm her. Law enforcement had Kathy look at pictures of convicted felons and suspects that resembled Johnny. There was one man named John Tesser who lived in the girl's neighborhood, but Kathy was not asked to identify him as the Johnny that came to play with them that day due to the alibi Tesser had the night of the abduction. Late December 1957, Kathy was taken to the Dane County Sheriff's Office in Madison, Wisconsin to see a lineup of possible suspects. She positively identified Thomas Joseph Rivard, Thomas was described by the FBI as a 35-year-old male, approximately 5'4", and weighing around 156 pounds. He had dark, blonde, wavy hair. However, though, Thomas did have an alibi for the night of December 3rd. He was actually in jail at the time of Maria's abduction. Police actually thought someone else in the lineup was the real suspect, and they only used Thomas just as a filler. And Thomas did not resemble Johnny at all. Johnny was said to be 6 inches taller than Thomas and 17 years younger. Marie's abduction received national news coverage, and it even caught the attention of President Dwight Eisenhower and FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. FBI Director J. Hoover demanded daily updates on the case, and President Eisenhower followed the case closely. 
Law enforcement continued to investigate different suspects, including transients and known sex offenders, and a local man who did enjoy giving children piggyback rides. None of these ever really developed any solid leads, unfortunately, and Maria's parents, Michael and Francis, appeared on television pleading for their daughter's safe return and asking for the public's help to find her. A couple months later, on April 26, 1958, near Woodbine, Illinois, two tourists that were visiting there were searching for mushrooms in a wooded area along U.S. Route 20 when they discovered the skeletal remains that seemed to belong to a small child. The skeletal remains were said to have been found along with a shirt, undershirt, and sock underneath a tree that had partially fallen over. The state of decomposition had indicated that the remains had been there for several months, and the remains were sadly identified as seven-year-old Maria Ridoffs, based off of dental records, a lock of hair, and the clothes that were found. The coat, pants, shoes, and undergarments Maria had been wearing the day she disappeared were never found. They did not take pictures of the crime scene because coroner James Furlong did not want the possibility of the pictures getting leaked to the newspaper. Since Maria's remains were found in Illinois, the FBI assumed it was safe to say no crime was committed across state lines, so they withdrew from the case and left it to local and state law enforcement. The initial autopsy did not help determine the cause of death, but an autopsy was done 50 years later and it showed that she was more than likely killed due to being stabbed several times in the throat. Now we are going to get into our suspects. I could only really find mention of two suspects, so let's get right into it. There are two main suspects in this case, first being William Henry Redman. In 1997, Sacramore Police Lieutenant Patrick Soler closed the case when it was more than 40 years old. He believed that former truck driver and carnival worker William, who was from Nebraska and had passed away in 1992, was the one who likely abducted and killed Maria. William had been charged in 1988 with the murder of an 8-year-old from Pennsylvania. He was also a suspect in the 1951 disappearance of a 10-year-old Beverly Potts in Ohio. It is said that William told a fellow inmate that he committed a crime similar to Maria's abduction and murder, and Lieutenant Soler's report was criticized due to the lack of evidence he had against William, and he possibly might have had political motivation. Lieutenant Soler said that the evidence against William was circumstantial, and if William would have still been alive, it would have been hard to convict him of the abduction and murder of Maria unless he had confessed to it. Soler deemed the case closed but not solved to leave the possibility open to another suspect that might be found. And they did find another suspect. Our next suspect is also the main suspect, John Tesser. I'm a former policeman, army officer, and vice president of a corporation. I've got to ask you this question. Are you the Johnny who kidnapped and killed Maria Riddle? Absolutely not. John Tesser was born John Cherry on November 27, 1939 in Belfast, Ireland, to his father Samuel Cherry, who was a British sergeant, and his mother Eileen McCulloch Cherry. Samuel was killed in World War II, and during the war, Eileen served as an airplane spotter with the UK Royal Air Force, and this is when she met Ralph Tesser. Eileen married Ralph in November of 1944, and after the war, John was seven years old, and him and his mother packed up and followed Ralph to Sacramore, Illinois. There, Eileen had six more children, and John then decided to go by John Tesser, even though some still referred to him as John Cherry. I, I, I was called Johnny when I was young. I quit, quit using my name Johnny when I was 12, because Mom and I had a talk, and she said, that sounds too, too uh, juvenile, and so I became John. <laughs> 
The Tesser home was located less than two blocks away from Maria's home. Do you remember Maria Ridoff? I remember her when she was three years old. And that's, that's something I, wanted, I want to point out. At three years old, uh, she was walking down the street uh, one day as I was going to the store, and she was about, oh, about 50 yards from her house and very near a very busy street where my dog had been killed. And I said, Maria, you shouldn't be here. Go home. So then she turned around and went home, and that was the last time I saw her. And that's why I said that she was so lovely. She was, she was dressed like she was ready to go to church. And she was, lovely wasn't the right, right that description. She was precious. She was just big-eyed little cupid doll. And, and her mother had, had done her hair, and, and she was wearing a cute little dress and those little patent shoes. And she was just precious. And that was the last time I saw her. When she was three? Yeah. You can understand why. So, but even describing this little girl the way you are right now, you were 16 years of age or something at the time. That's a little creepy, no, isn't No, I was 13 at what, the last time I saw her. And, and uh, I'm a father. I've, I've had, a, had a daughter. And, and uh, children are, are precious when they're that little. Um, and that doesn't say, this is someone I want to kill. <laughs> this is somebody I want to protect. I'm a born protector. I'm from a long line of military people. And John was expelled in 10th grade for pushing a teacher and calling her names. This will come into play here in a little. At the time of Maria's disappearance, John would have been 18 years old, living with his family and making plans in hope to join the U.S. Air Force. On December 4, 1957, law enforcement visited the Tesser home during their search for Maria. According to John's half-sisters, Catherine and Jean, their mother, Eileen, spoke to investigators and told them that John had been home the night of December 3rd, something that they later testified was not true. John and his parents told FBI investigators that on December 3rd, John was in Rockford, Illinois, about 40 miles northwest of Sacramore, so he could enlist in the Air Force. He had been in Chicago on December 2nd and December 3rd, undergoing physical examinations that were required for enlistment. In the morning of December 3rd, John visited the Chicago recruiting station and then went sightseeing. He then returned to Rockford around 6.45 p.m. by train, and when he arrived in Rockford, he called his parents to ask for a ride back home to Sacramore. Telephone records did show a collect call was placed from the Rockford Post Office to the Tesser home around 6.57 p.m. that night. After calling back home, John met with officers from the Rockford recruiting station to drop off his paperwork for enlistment, and the recruiting officers did confirm they spoke to John around 7.15 that night. John was brought into the police station to take a lie detector test, which he did pass, but we all know lie detector tests are very unreliable. John was then taken off the suspect list, and the FBI closed his report on December 10, 1957, noting that no further investigation is being conducted regarding the above suspect. Kathy Sigum was never asked to identify him, as I said earlier, due to his alibi, and John left the following day to begin basic training at Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio, Texas. He served in the military for 13 years and rose to become captain. After serving, he moved to Seattle, Washington, where he graduated from King County Law Enforcement Academy in June of 1974. In 1982, in Tacoma, Washington, John took in 15-year-old runaway Michelle Weenham and her friend. Michelle testified that shortly after she began living with John, he would fondle her and perform oral sex on her. 
John was then charged with statutory rape. He pled guilty to a misdemeanor, which was communication with a minor for immoral purposes. He was sentenced to one year probation and was fired from the police station on March 10, 1982. April 24, 1994, John then changed his name to Jack Daniel McCulloch in honor of his late mother. And in 2011, John was in his early 70s living in a retirement community in Seattle where he worked as a security guard. The case was reopened in 2008 based on new information from John's half-sister, Janet Tesser. According to Janet, in January of 1994, when their mother Eileen was on her deathbed, her mother told her, those two little girls and the one who disappeared, John did it and you have to tell someone. Janet took this as John had abducted and murdered Maria Ridolf. Janet said she heard from Catherine and Jean Tesser that Eileen had lied to investigators when she told them John was home the night of the abduction. At the time, Eileen was a cancer patient and she was on morphine and her doctor said that she was disoriented. John had allegedly threatened Janet with a gun and had sexually molested his other half-sister, Jean, when she was a minor. Janet said she had many numerous attempts to get law enforcement and the FBI to look into what her mother had said. Patrick Soler, who believed William Redmond had done it, told CNN that Janet had never talked to him, but that he would have never suspected John. And in 2008, Janet emailed an Illinois State Police tip line, which resulted in the state police taking a lengthy investigation into John's background and alibi. Catherine and Jean told investigators about their suspicions, and Jean said that John had molested her as a child and other young girls. One woman alleged that John had given her a piggyback ride as a child and would not put her down until her father intervened. State investigators made up a timeline where John could have kidnapped Maria and then drove to Rockford to make the phone call to his family home. I could not find the full timeline, but this made police think that Maria would have been taken no later than 6.20 p.m. Police wanted to have Kathy Sigum participate in a photographic lineup using pictures from the 1957 Sacramore High School yearbook. But John was not in it since he had been expelled. Like I mentioned earlier, he had pushed a teacher and called her offensive names. One of John's previous girlfriends gave police a photo of him from around that time, and Kathy picked his picture up out of the lineup. The previous girlfriend also provided police with an unused train ticket from Rockford to Chicago, dated from back in 1957, insinuating that contrary to John's alibi, he had not taken the train to Chicago, meaning he drove there so he could have had time to come back to Sacramore to kidnap Maria. In July 2011, the Seattle Police Department had partnered up with the Illinois State Police and brought John in for questioning. John at first spoke calmly and he was very cooperative, but then they began questioning him about Maria. He became aggressive and evasive. John refused to answer any more questions and he was then arrested and extradited back to Illinois. They then had Maria's body exhumed, hoping to find DNA, but unfortunately there was no DNA to be found. The news that an arrest had been made in a 54-year-old cold case drew a lot of national attention. And lead prosecutor DeKalb County State Attorney Clay Campbell was worried about taking the case since there was not a lot of evidence to tie John to the case. But after talking with the Ridoffs and the Tessers, he agreed to take the case on and charge John with the murder and abduction of Maria Ridoff. September 2012, the prosecution believed John was attracted to Maria and that is why he kidnapped her, but then he decided to kill her. Prosecutors suspected John had molested Maria, but they were unable to prove it and actually did not bring it up in court since there was no evidence. The prosecutors had numerous witnesses testify, including Maria's family, neighbors, law enforcement, and Kathy Sigum. Another one of Maria's friends also testified, saying John had offered her piggyback rides in the past as well. And three inmates that were in jail with John testified that he talked about how he murdered little Maria. 
One inmate testified that John had strangled Maria with a wire, and another inmate said John had accidentally smothered Maria to death when he was trying to get her to stop screaming, which does line up with what Maria's mother said in that one interview that if Maria was screaming, you would literally have to kill her to get her to calm down. The defense argued that there was a lot of pressure on the police and prosecutors from the Rudolph family for them to solve the case. They argued there was no physical evidence, motive, or indication that John was even in the area when Maria was abducted. And on September 14, 2012, John was convicted of the abduction and murder of Maria, and he was given a life sentence with the possibility of parole in 20 years. John was 73 years old at the time of his conviction. In 2015, John filed a petition for a post-conviction relief, asking for his murder conviction to be set aside. His petition was initially dismissed by the court as frivolous and without merit, and the public offender that represented John at his trial continued to investigate the case even though he was no longer appointed to John. He asked the court to reconsider the dismissal, and John filed a successive motion that could not be denied without hearing from the state attorney. Richard Smack, who had replaced Clay Campbell as the DeKalb County State's Attorney, conducted a thorough review of evidence which led him to conclude that John could have not committed this crime and that John was an innocent man. Richard said evidence had been withheld from the trial that clearly backed up John's whereabouts on the night the crime happened. He also said that due to the 40-mile distance between Sacramore and Rockford and the icy road conditions at the time, John would have not been able to kidnap Maria. On April 15, 2016, Judge William P. Brady vacated John's original conviction and ordered a new trial. John was still charged with the crime, but he was released on a bond pending his new trial. And Judge Brady, a week later, dismissed John of the charges against him. However, he dismissed the murder charge without prejudice, meaning John could be tried again for the murder of Maria. John McCulloch was declared innocent of all charges against him on April 12th. 2017 by the DeKalb County Circuit Court. You were a suspect back then. This isn't all new to you. You were a suspect. I was not a in, suspect. In 1957, you were a suspect. I passed an FBI polygraph the next day. But they gave you a polygraph because you were a suspect. Oh, because my, well, I was a, I was a neighbor. Um, and I, I, my name was John. But, they, but everybody, they looked at 1,800 people. Everybody was a suspect. Why did your mom lie about you know, She lied saying that your dad picked you up, and she lied about you being in the house. She didn't I know. have no idea, and I wish she hadn't. Do you think she thought you might have been involved? She was frightened. This is the FBI. She, she had to have been frightened. Yeah, but this is her son. Did she think you might have been involved somehow in the kidnapping? I don't know. I have no idea. Um, I'm not a murderer. I, I, I would, I, I've never, I never hurt anybody, ever. That is all I have for you today. This case seems to still be unsolved to this day. Who do you think did it? Was it actually William Redman or was it truly John McCulloch? Or maybe it was someone the police never even suspected. Don't forget to subscribe to Crime Sesh if you aren't already subscribed. Remember to share and like and follow us on Instagram. And remember to always stay safe out there. And I will talk to y'all next time on Crime Sesh.